and welcome to the Narrow Road Podcast, a place to share the journey of walking with God on the narrow road that leads to life. I hope that you find rest and encouragement here, but above all, the awareness that you're not alone on the way. Hello, hello everyone, and welcome back to the Narrow Road Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Bowyer, and it is my pleasure to be back with you for another episode. Today we are moving right along in the life of Jesus. We are now at Luke chapter 10 and oh what a relief. It's actually a little bit of a a shorter chapter, a little bit of a shorter chapter than the last few we've had. So hopefully that means a little bit of a shorter episode. Um, Yeah, I'm just gonna go ahead and dive right into it because there is some beautiful stuff in this particular passage. It's a lot, again, of Jesus preparing his disciples to take on the mantle of of ministry, really. So it's a lot of firm warnings and, and serious words in context to what they are going to do now, because he went out from just sending his his 12 disciples out to now he's sending out the 70. So he's moving up and, and empowering a larger group of people to go out with the power of Jesus. And he's going to speak quite clearly to them about how to compose themselves and what hopefully the results of their work will be. And then we will have some parables and Um, a new introduction of Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. So this Mary is not Mary Magdalene, as far as historical context reveals. Um, It used to be thought that this was the same Mary Magdalene, uh, but in later searching and studying out, they actually believe that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the sister of Martha, are two different Marys. So we're going to get introduced to them. And that'll be the chapter. So let's go ahead and dive in and see what the Lord is saying to us um, in Luke chapter 10. And more importantly, what is he showing us about himself? So let's go into it now. All right. So as usual, I am reading out of the Amplified Bible just to get additional context Um, For each passage that we read here, I find the Amplified Bible to be super helpful. And we're going to be starting, if you recall, yesterday we ended where Jesus was giving um, us examples of people who had come to him and said, Hey, I want to follow you, but first let me go bury my father. Or, yes, I'm going to follow you as my Lord, but first let me go say goodbye to my family. And he was really giving us some some firm perspective on how serious and immediate the commitment to God actually is. And so that is the context that we're kind of moving from now into this next passage. All right, Luke chapter 10, verse 1. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them out ahead of him two by two into every city and place where he was about to go. He was saying to them, The harvest is abundant, for there are many who need to hear the good news about salvation. But the workers, or those available to proclaim the message of salvation, are few. Therefore, prayerfully ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Go your way and listen carefully. I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. 
Do not carry a money belt, a provision bag, or extra sandals, and do not greet anyone along the way who would delay you. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. And if any one of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not move from house to house. Whenever you go into a city and they welcome you, eat what is set before you, and heal those in it who are sick, authenticating your message, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not welcome you, go out into its streets and say, Even the dust of your city which clings to our feet we wipe off in protest against you, breaking all ties. Yet understand this, that the kingdom of God has come near you, and you rejected it. I tell you, it will be more bearable in that day of judgment for Sodom than for that city. Judgment is coming to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented and changed their minds long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes to show deep regret for sin. However, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, the realm of the dead. The one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him, my heavenly Father, who sent me. The seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. But he said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. Listen carefully. I have given you authority that you now possess to tread on serpents and scorpions and the ability to exercise authority over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will in any way harm you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. In that very hour he was overjoyed and rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit, and he said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things related to salvation from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants, the childlike and untaught. Yes, Father, for this was your gracious will and choice and was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been transferred and turned over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wishes to reveal him. Then turning to his disciples, Jesus said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see what you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings longed to see what you see, and they did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. And a certain lawyer, an expert in Mosaic law, stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he replied, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this habitually and you will live. But he, wishing to justify and vindicate himself, asked Jesus, Well, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to to Jericho, and he encountered robbers, who stripped him of his clothes and belongings, beat him, and went their way unconcerned, leaving him half dead. Now by coincidence, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also came down to the place and saw him and passed by on the other side of the road. But a Samaritan, a foreigner, who was traveling, came upon him. And when he saw him, he was deeply moved with compassion for him, and went to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them to soothe and disinfect the injuries. And he put him on his own pack animal, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day he took out two denarii, which would be two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I return." Which of these three do you think proved himself a neighbor to the man who encountered the robbers? The man answered, The one who showed compassion and mercy to him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and constantly do the same. Now while they were on their way, Jesus entered a village called Bethany, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary, who seated herself at the Lord's feet and was continually listening to his teaching. But Martha was very busy and distracted with all of her serving responsibilities, and she approached Jesus and said, Lord, is it of no concern to you that my sister has left me to do the serving alone? Tell her to help me and do her part. But the Lord replied to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered and anxious about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, that which is to her advantage, which will not be taken away from her. Alrighty, so, awesome chapter. We saw that it started out first with him sending out 70 other disciples, which is really interesting because it it widens our field of view. It helps us see that we often think about the 12 core disciples who would later become the apostles, but they weren't the only people following Jesus, as we can clearly see by how many crowds were always surrounding him anytime he came into the town. So obviously there was a larger group of people always around him, but beyond the 12 that he was very intimate with, he also had a larger group from there that he ministered to, he poured into, and he entrusted to go and bring this message. They were clearly connected to him and spending a lot of time with him to be equipped to do the work of ministry. Um, And in reading the uh, commentaries on this, uh, I found something interesting. It says that Interesting, Jesus knew that the time was short before his crucifixion and that there were still many villages that had not yet heard his message. Jesus turned to this larger group of his disciples to be his messengers to prepare these places ahead of him. This is very interesting because he was he had a time crunch and he wanted to be sure that he had hit as much as he possibly could. So he still intended to come behind these men and and show himself and do the work of God and speak to the people, but he was sending people in advance of him. And I think when you even think about ministry, how often he sends us, right? He sends his children into places, into people's lives. And by being there, we're making way for Holy Spirit to come and operate through us or with us or in us. And so that model of he sends his people out and then he rides in after them 
to fulfill and bring the power and bring the manifestation of his goodness. It is, it is clearly seen both in his lived example and now in us as we see through partnership with Holy Spirit. So I really, really appreciated that. There was a little commentary here by Spurgeon talking about how Jesus was going to come into each of these towns after his um, men had gone through. And he said, what a mercy it is when the preacher knows that his master is coming after him, when he can hear the sound of his master's feet behind him, what courage it gives him. He knows that though it is very little what he can do, he is the thin edge of the wedge preparing the way for the one who can do everything. And it's so, so good. What courage it gives him. He knows that though it is very little what he can do, he is the thin edge of the wedge preparing the way for the one who can do everything. Man, may that always be our perspective when we are getting, getting, right? That's key word. They're getting to do something with God. You know, that we are the thin edge of the wedge preparing the way for the one who can do everything. What a humble place to know your place, to know that you're both empowered to do the work of God, but you are just preparing the way for the real one, (laughs) for Holy Spirit to come through and actually transform people's lives. Such a cool, cool, beautiful way to see that. And he sent them two by two, which is interesting. He didn't send them out by themselves. He sent them two by two. Um, And this commentary says, to teach them the necessity of concord among the ministers of righteousness, that in the mouths of two witnesses, everything might be established, and that they might comfort and support each other in their difficult labor. So you see this value Jesus has in never leaving someone on their own. Because even Jesus, while he was physically on his own he never was right he he said i only do what i see the father doing i only say what i hear the father saying he was always in partnership with god but when you know little people they really need to understand how to work together and that we need each other we need the comfort and support we of we uh, give one another and we need um what we say to be established, right? The, the principle of where two or more gather, there I am. Um, if two or more agree on a thing, may it be established. These are scriptural and biblical principles. These are promises of God. So he doesn't break his own rules. He understands the power and authority of sending two together. And also it teaches them how to work together instead of just being sort of kings unto themselves, um, sort of rogue agents. They had to work in partnership with one another. That's so good. And then we see it talks about um, the harvest and reminding them to ask the Lord to send out workers to his harvest. Um, And he reminds them that I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. And this is a really interesting um, statement because I feel like there's a lot of ways to interpret that. Obviously, wolves in this passage doesn't really give a positive connotation necessarily. Um, but when you when you look at it through the lens of Spurgeon, let's say, I found some Spurgeon commentary here. It says that Jesus commanded these disciples to go with a certain kind of heart, trusting God and not seeking to abuse and manipulate others. 
Going as lambs among wolves doesn't sound very attractive, yet it was exactly how Jesus was sent and how the power of God worked through him mightily. After all, the mission of sheep to wolves is a hopeful one, since we see in the natural world that the sheep, though so feeble, by far outnumber the wolves who are so fierce. The day will come when persecutors will be as scarce as wolves and saints as numerous as sheep. I think that's just such a really cool and redemptive take because I think Jesus was really not just trying to say, oh, you're going to be so weak compared to the wolves that are out there, like watch out. No, I think he was really trying to posture their heart. He was trying to give them a visual of what is a sheep like. They're gentle. They're gentle. They're humble in a way. They're kind. Um, they're, they're soft. There's a softness to a lamb if you compare it to a wolf. And I think it's really important that he points out that that's exactly how Jesus was sent. He was a lamb amongst the wolves. He could have used all this power and all this fierceness and all this intimidation, and he didn't. He chose to humble himself and act in a gentle and lowly manner, calling himself the man of sorrows. Then it goes on to tell them what not to bring. It says, carry neither a money bag, a knapsack, or even sandals. Greet no one along the road. Um, This is important because he didn't want them distracted by any kind of material concerns. He also, uh, when it came to, it sounds pretty harsh, don't greet anyone along the way, but actually... Uh, when you when you look at it in the east, the types of greetings that they would have would be quite long and lengthy greetings. They might often even include a meal. And so if you stop and you greet everyone and they take you to their house and they want to have a meal with you, you're, you're not going to really get too much done if there's a place you're intending to go. So he didn't want them distracted by things. He wanted them fiercely on the mission and not getting so wrapped up in sort of cultural traditions and things of that nature. And then he says, whenever you get to a house that welcomes you, say peace to this house. The customs of that time meant that they would likely stay in the home of hospitable people. They were instructed to bring a blessing of peace to each house if the home would receive it. They were to trust that God would provide for them through the generosity of others, and they were thankfully to receive what was offered to them without begging. And Jesus also wanted them to regard the support given to them as charity. Excuse me, not as charity, but as a proper payment for their work on behalf of God's kingdom. And so I was thinking about that and I was like, hmm, I wonder if that's where we get sort of full-time ministry. And because I guess I've always struggled that a little bit myself, struggled with that, seeing people working in, working as itinerant preachers, evangelists, whatnot, and Um, taking a salary from the church rather than working a normal job. And I think it's just something I personally uh, wasn't sure how to wrap my head around. But I think it's interesting. I mean, in the context of this, I don't know if we've extrapolated from this verse out and created a whole system around it. But in the context of this verse, when he's talking to his people who are going out to the work of evangelism, that they should not see what they're being given as any form of charity, but they should actually see it as payment for their work on behalf of God's kingdom. So I find that very, very interesting. And um, and not even as a form of charity, not seeing themselves as a charity case, but actually feeling 
truly empowered that, hey, I'm doing the most important thing in the whole wide world right now. I'm bringing people the message of the gospel and actually seeing real value in that enough to understand that you are worthy of your wages. You are worthy of the ways that people might bless you. Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's hard for me. I don't know why there's this part of me that wrestles with that, but hey, it's out of the Lord's mouth. And he encourages them to go into those houses and to heal the sick, a way to affirm what they're there to do, the message that they're bringing. And the healing was important because it showed that the kingdom of God had come with power, as everyone expected it would. Yet the power was also evident in acts of mercy and kindness, which was not expected. Say to them that the kingdom of God has come near to you. This meant that the healing was a part of their preaching. As part of healing the sick, they described what the kingdom of God was about, was about from what Jesus had taught and shown them. So the kingdom of God looked like something. <laughs> it was supposed to look like something. It wasn't supposed to just be words. It wasn't supposed to just be teaching. Healing and works of miracles, demonic deliverance, are integral to an effective preaching of the gospel. Jesus says later, right, these signs shall follow those that believe. They will heal the sick. They will cast out demons. So it has to go one with the other. If the gospel is words alone, while not ineffective, it has, it, it is weak. I remember Reinhard Bonnke, Reinhard Bonnke used to say that the gospel, if you aren't preaching and healing, you're, working, you're walking with a limp or you're walking with one leg. But in order to walk with two functional legs, to be fully effective, you carry both in your arsenal. You walk in both the power of God to heal, to deliver, and you walk in the gospel of Jesus to salvation. Mm. And then we get to the portion that's a bit harder to hear <laughs> when he talks about um, if you enter into a city and they do not receive you. Because you have to understand the word about Jesus and his disciples would have been traveling far and wide. So when some of the men of God were coming into towns, they would have kind of known what was going on. They would have been aware who's coming to them. So as soon as someone came in, they're going to start what? Healing the sick. They're going to start working in miracles. And that's either going to be well received or it's going to be met with a lot of uh, get out of here. <laughs> you know, it's that, that's, it wasn't going to be hard for these men to be noticed and either accepted or rejected. So Jesus is saying, when you go into a city and they do not receive you, go out into its streets. I mean, this is a spectacle, eh? That he's, <laughs> that he's giving his disciples permission to, to make. Go out into its streets and say, the very dust of your city, which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in the day of Sodom. And we all know what happened, happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? I mean, fire fell from heaven and destroyed that city for its uh, gross sinfulness. So he's saying it would be more tolerable in the day of Sodom than for that city. The city that rejects the message of God, the message of the kingdom. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, these ancient cities, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it would be more tolerable for them than the judgment will be for you. 
and you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears me, he who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects my Father who sent me. So that's a pretty, man, I'd hate to be one of those cities. Then you think about the world. Are there literal cities that reject God? Are there literal cities that would reject the message of the kingdom? It seems crazy. I could see individuals, but like entire cities? Yeah, it's just like, it's a wide, it takes my mind into wild places of imagining that many people as a group agreeing, we don't want this. But then if I think about the story we read a couple of days ago about the demoniac, and how Jesus went there to deliver him, and, and invariably, I would assume, was going to pre- preach to the whole city of Gethsenes, or whatever the name of it was. It was the Gentile city, and they all asked him to leave. So is that same message, what he's saying to these 70 that are going out, of what would happen to any cities that turn their back on them and say, don't come here, was that same thing going to happen to that Gentile city that rejected Jesus? It's a scary thought. But then he leaves them with this, this confidence that they can sort of stand behind. Jesus is so good to do this, to bring you into this comfortable, (laughs) this sort of safety net where he's like, but listen, hey, if they reject you, don't take it personally. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. He who hears you hears me. First of all, what a vote of confidence. He's telling his disciples, Whoever is listening to you, what's coming out of your mouth, they're listening to me. My goodness, what authority he's given these men before they've even had the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He who hears you hears me, and he who rejects you rejects me. So there's that safety net of they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And if they're rejecting me, they're rejecting my father. It goes much higher up the chain of command than it is you. And I think that that is like a true, true, <laughs> truly comfortable, really, thing to, to, to feel. But, but it's a necessary truth. He needs you to understand that you're speaking on behalf of Jesus. It both creates weight on what you're saying as a minister of God, but it also gives you some kind of comfort and solace in the fact that it's not just about you. It's not you individually that are getting rejected. It's the message you're carrying. It's the message of Jesus. It's Jesus himself. It says, as he sent his 70 disciples with the anticipation that some would reject them, Jesus also encouraged them with the thought that they were his representatives and should not take their rejection or acceptance too personally. If others rejected the messengers, they rejected Jesus and also rejected his father. It is helpful for all servants of God to not hold either praise or rejection too tightly. If they truly represent their master, the success or rejection of their work is more due to him than to them. Their greatest concern should not be with success or rejection, but with properly representing Jesus, their master. Oh, so good. All right, so in the second half of the chapter, we see that the 70 all returned and they are absolutely elated. They are thrilled to death. (laughs) 
And the thing they're most thrilled to death about is that the demons were subject to them in the name of Jesus. So, (laughs) you know, invariably they were, you know, healing people of, of various illnesses but sometimes healing people looks like delivering them from de- demonic oppression or suppression or uh, possession. And they were fascinated with this. They couldn't believe <laughs> that. I mean, they could and they couldn't believe that this was happening. And so they came back. And the commentary adds that a careful look at the instructions Jesus gave these 70 shows that Jesus had not originally commissioned them to cast out demons as he did for the 12 disciples in the chapter before. Therefore, we might regard this as an unexpected blessing of their ministry, and perhaps that's why they came back so excited, because perhaps they listened very carefully to what Jesus said that they were going to go and do, um, and were shocked to find that when demons started manifesting, that they could also deal with that, regardless of the fact that Jesus didn't stipulate specifically that they would be doing that. These 70 disciples learned that when we boldly do what Jesus tells us to do, we can anticipate that he will bless us in ways beyond our expectation. And they were careful to say that the demons are subject to us in your name, Jesus. Saying in your name shows that they didn't take credit to themselves. They knew it was the power and authority of Jesus. Hmm. But then Jesus is Jesus, eh? And (laughs) he's so good to pull them back from this place of just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe what we did. Like, yes, celebrate, rejoice to a degree. But he's, he kind of like levels the playing field again. And he's like, listen, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. (laughs) Like, I'm sure he doesn't mean it the way I read it, but I, I read it as like the ultimate, like put you back in your place of, hang on guys, like I was there when, when Satan went from Lucifer to Satan, like I've, I've seen the whole thing, like don't, don't get too far ahead of yourselves. I don't necessarily know that that's what he was, um, speaking to, but I appreciate what I extract from that in the form of humor. Um, The commentary says the success of these commissioned disciples, especially their authority over demonic spirits, caused Jesus to speak of the fall of Satan when he fell as quick and dramatically as lightning from heaven. Here Jesus spoke of Satan's first fall from glorified to profane. Fall like lightning from heaven doesn't mean that Satan fell from heaven, but that his fall was as dramatic and sudden as as a bolt of lightning. Mm. But then Jesus says, Behold, I give you authority. Um, sorry, I've lost my, my place here. I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and all the power of the enemy and nothing will harm you. Because Satan was fallen and the disciples were messengers of Jesus and his kingdom, they enjoyed the superior power of God over Satan. This is what the commentary is telling them that Jesus is showing them through these statements. He's saying, you have the superior power of God as messengers of my kingdom over Satan. But he says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you. Jesus warned them to rejoice in what God had done for them, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It wasn't wrong for them to rejoice in the success of their service, but they must have a greater joy in a greater miracle, the promise of their own salvation. Spurgeon says he did not mean in the present instance 
to censure their joy in their success, but only to make it subordinate to another rejoicing and to prevent its growing to excess. Some people get emotionally intoxicated after successful service or the display of spiritual power. After God uses them in some way, they are arrogantly impressed with all they did for God. God wants us to always see that what he did for us always is far greater than what we could ever do for him. It's good for us to be moderate in the joy we have over our talents, our gifts, and our success. Hmm. Then we go on to this prayer where Jesus prays. He goes straight into talking to his God because he is full of joy for what they have gotten to see and experience. He is so happy to see that God has given the unlearned, given these people that aren't the wise, they're not the prudent, they're not the um, upper echelon in society, that they have been granted the ability to learn from Jesus and understand him and walk in this power. He's so happy, really, he truly is happy for them. He's got to take them down a peg or two just to make sure they always stay in the right headspace of, of, of spiritual order, prioritizing the right things that they are saved, that what God has done for them, what God has made available to them is far, far more important than anything that they can do for God or with God. But he personally goes to the Father and he is genuinely excited for them. He rejoiced in the Spirit. Literally, the ancient Greek says he was thrilled with joy. This singular specific example of Jesus rejoicing was over the work of his servants. God delights in using the weak and foolish things of this world to confound the wise. This is the only occasion in the Gospels where it is specifically said that Jesus rejoiced. It stands alone. Yet we should not think that Jesus never rejoiced other times. We do not hear that he laughed, though it is thrice recorded that he wept. And here for once, as quite unique, we find the inspired assurance that he rejoiced. Hmm. And then let me see here. So at that point, we're going to see that a man comes up to him. This is that Mosaic lawyer. This is a man who is a extremely well-read in the things of the Mosaic law, obviously also well-respected. He makes his way into sort of the hustle and bustle of all that's going on around Jesus. And he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asks him, well, what's written in the law? He knows who this man is. He knows his competency. And he says, what is your reading of it? What does the law say? And the man said, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered rightly, do this and you'll live. Like, it's pretty simple. (laughs) But the man wanting to justify himself said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And then Jesus goes into um, the Good Samaritan parable, which is such a powerful parable. But it says his, the commentary says his first and perhaps greatest mistake was in assuming that he had fulfilled the first commandment. When we really consider what the words mean, Then who among us has loved God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind? It is easy for us to be distracted in any one of these areas, even when we worship God, even so in our daily living. His second mistake was in thinking that he could fulfill the commandment to love God with all he had and still possibly not fulfill the command to love his neighbor. 
Woo. His third mistake was in the way that he wanted to narrowly define neighbor. If only our friends and those who are easy to love are our neighbors, then perhaps this man fulfilled it in an imperfect way. It all depends on how broad the definition is. The Jews in Jesus' day did believe that you had to love your neighbor, but it was also taught among them that it was a duty before God to hate your enemy. It all depends on who your neighbor is and who your enemy is. That is such an interesting take that I have never considered when I think about that story, that the way the man asked the question, especially that second question, he says, how do I inherit eternal life? He answers it for himself by a good question from Jesus. And then he follows it up and says, but who is my neighbor exactly? And just asking that question, as the commentator rightly points out, was him in his arrogance, assuming it was so easy to love God this way. <laughs> well, okay, so if I love God with all my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength, yeah, 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 no worries. But um, who do I love? How do I love my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? You know, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. If you love... God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, it shouldn't be any problem to love your neighbor as yourself, right? It kind of just folds into that if you're actually immersed in the love of God. So his trying to narrow down who his neighbor is, so as, as the commentator rightly points out, he doesn't make the mistake of loving his enemy, (laughs) right? He doesn't want to do that, even though Jesus has already begun preaching a new way, which is to love your enemies, but he doesn't he wants to know very clearly so who are the people i then love instead of understanding if you really love the, your father fully in the way that you're called to you will love everyone as your neighbor you will love everyone as yourself oh that is like actually really convicting for me even hearing that such an interesting take the way that that goes because honestly i feel like when i hear jesus say you love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, I so quickly fall into the same category as this lawyer, and I instantly start thinking about, so how do I love my neighbor as myself, and how do I love myself? But truly, the answer to that is wrapped up in the beginning of the commandment. (laughs) It's the loving God, because we become what we behold. And so when we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we will inherently love ourselves because we're constantly receiving the love of God in that transaction. And through loving ourselves, we will love every person that comes in contact with us. We will walk with a spirit of peace and gentleness and compassion. So we really need to take our minds in a way, our eyes off of even the second half of that because it is the natural outpouring of fulfilling the first part of that commandment. Man, that is so rich. That is so good. And then, of course, Jesus, to exemplify um, what the neighbor is, he's speaking about this man who got beaten by robbers, left for dead. Two holy men walk past him and don't do anything to help him. You know, oh, be warmed. We'll pray for you. You know, give the whole, like, religious emptiness there. And then one man, a Samaritan, who again would be someone that the Jews had no regard for, they had no respect for, they were a lower class of people in the eyes of the Jews. A Samaritan comes, takes compassion on this man, cleans his wounds, puts him on his horse, takes him to an inn to the next town, pays for him to be in the inn, and tells the innkeeper, whatever more you need to look after this man financially, I'll provide. Like that is going above and beyond to overflow, right? That is an incredible level of 
support someone is doing. That is the standard. That is the standard. That is our neighbor, the man in the pit. (laughs) That is our neighbor. Any person suffering, are you at the ready to be support to them? Are you at the ready to do what it takes to show the love of God to them? It says here in the commentary, when Jesus' listeners heard about the priest and the Levite, they probably expected Jesus to say next that a common Jewish man came and helped. If that happened, the story would be another way, but Jesus showed the corruption of the religious leaders in that day. Jesus shocked them by saying that the man who actually helped was a Samaritan. Mm-hmm. Jesus with that shock factor. Instead of passing by, the Samaritan loved the man sacrificially. He didn't wait to be asked. To see the need right in front of him was enough to make him do something. He also gave freely of both his time and his resources. And Jesus then says at the end of the parable, he says, So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him, Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Mm. The commentary says, we are arrested by the fact that he completely shifted the ground of the question. And by this reply said, in effect, that the question as to who is a neighbor was not so important as the question to whom he was a neighbor. Jesus allowed the parable to answer the lawyer's question and guide the application. I am to love my neighbor, and my neighbor is the one who others might consider my enemy. My neighbor is the one with a need right in front of me. Spurgeon wrote that when we see innocent persons suffering as the result of the sin of others, our pity should be excited. He then gave examples of situations that should provoke pity in the believer. Children sick and starving because of a drunken father— Wives overworked and burdened because of lazy and cruel husbands. Workers oppressed in wages and working conditions just to survive. Those afflicted from accidents and disease. This doesn't mean running after every need that might present itself. After all, the Samaritan didn't establish a hospital for unfortunate travelers. But it does mean a concern for the ones plain before us in both social and spiritual needs. The world would be a changed place if every Christian attended to the sorrows that are plain before him. I'm going to leave it there because I have a lot to say on the Mary and Martha story. It's quite a short story, but I feel like it deserves a little bit more talking than I feel like I'm going to give it because we're running at the very end of the podcast today and I don't want these episodes to continue to be very long. So I'm going to leave it there. Man, there is a wealth I'm loving commentaries. Commentaries are adding so, so much. And the Amplified Bible adds so, so much to uh, what we're reading and studying. I hope you took something away from that. I felt a lot of conviction identifying (laughs) with that lawyer and the way he asked that question. Um, But yeah, there's so, so much goodness in there. So I hope it blessed you. I really appreciate you listening to another episode of the Narrow Road Podcast. And of course, I will be back tomorrow for another episode and we will finish on Mary and Martha and dive into the next chapter. So thank you so much for listening and I will be back tomorrow. Thanks and bye-bye.